Good morning, church. Oh, I love this church. I love you all. Turn to Matthew 17, unless you're already turning there. We have a good word for us from the book of Matthew this morning. So I will be reading verses 1 through 13. The title of this message is Beholding Jesus' Glory. Beholding Jesus' Glory. And I will read beginning in verse 1, so please follow along. As I read. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before him, before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked them, Now why did the the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is God's holy, authoritative, inerrant word. Please pray with me. Lord, we come to your word in humility, and we ask that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love, that we might be glad and rejoice all our days. And we declare, as we do every day, that the flesh is no, no help at all right now, but we need your Spirit. And so I ask that you fill me with your Spirit and fill all of us with your Spirit, that we might comprehend, that we might see Christ revealed to us in your Word and tune our hearts to your Word that we might understand it and believe it, and be transformed by it. Pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've ever climbed a mountain, who's ever been up a mountain before? I do not have that privilege. So, But if you've ever been up a mountain, or perhaps like me, you've been on a hike and stood on an overlook and looked out at a river or the scenery in front of you, If you've ever done that before, you would be wise to remember three things. After you stop and consider where you're at on the mountain or at the overlook, you would remember to look, you would remember to listen, and to learn. You want to look at the beauty of God's creation in front of you, the splendor of the mountain or the river. You want to listen to the bubbling of the river or the birds singing, declaring God's glory. And you want to learn from all of that. God, more of God's glory revealed to you in creation. That'd be a mountaintop moment for you. It'd be wise to remember those three things, 
Here in Matthew 17, Jesus takes three of his disciples to their own mountaintop moment, up a mountain, that it's supposed to stick with them in their journey ahead, and they are to do likewise. They are to stop, and they are to look, and to listen, and to learn. And most importantly, in this passage, they are to behold Jesus' glory in his transfiguration, This, essentially, most importantly, is the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. His deity, His splendor, His perfection. That He is beloved of the Father God. That He is, as Peter said just a bit ago, the Son of the living God. The Christ. This moment was designed by the Father to assure the disciples that, yes, Peter, what you just said... That is true. This is the Messiah. This is who He truly is. He is the Messiah as He just said. He's going to suffer, but He's the King of glory. He is the Lord of glory. So do not forget that on the road ahead. This is the Messiah that you follow. And we likewise, as the disciples did, we are to behold the King of glory revealed to us in this passage. The word behold in Greek is a do. And the, the translators of our ESV Bibles, they, they commented how that word doesn't really have an English translation. You can't really sum it up in one word. The word essentially means listen, it means look, it means consider, it means pay attention to this. This is really important. So whenever, whenever you see behold, that's, that sums up everything and includes all of those different ideas. And so we, as we behold Christ in this text... We want to look. We want to listen. We want to learn. Pay careful and close attention to what is revealed to us. So we're going to do that through those three points. First, we're going to look. Look at Christ's majesty. And we're going to see this in verses 1 through 3. Now, if you've got your Bibles open, look back at the very last verse of Matthew 16, verse 28. Right before the transfiguration, Jesus had just promised that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What's Jesus saying here? Many ideas, perhaps His transfiguration, it does happen right after. Perhaps His ministry, or His resurrection, or Pentecost, or everything that happens after that, or perhaps even His second coming. Diversity of opinions, but as Bert taught us last week, it seems more fully that Jesus is talking about the coming of the Son of Man is pointing to how His kingdom will advance as His church is built, as the gates of hell will not prevail against it, as the gospel is proclaimed and goes to all nations all the way by the end of Acts, we see all the way to Rome, and some of those standing there will actually see that before they die. That seems to be more fully what Jesus is pointing at, but it is interesting, note that Matthew here, and if you look at this account in Mark and in Luke, Immediately after Jesus says that, all three of those Gospels talk about the transfiguration. Six days later. So this does seem, at least in part, a taste or a preview of that kingdom coming in power. This transfiguration moment when they see the Son of Man in His glory. Now here's the thing, the disciples... They think they are starting to understand that this is the Messiah. They just proclaimed it. They believe it. But their knowledge of the Messiah is still very limited. 
right? They believe he's going to be the king, that he is the king, and he's going to bring the kingdom, and it's coming in power, and it's coming real soon. But they don't get the suffering aspect just, just yet. Jesus just talked about that. Peter rebuked him for even talking about it. They don't understand that the glory of the kingdom must first come through the suffering of the cross. They're going to get it eventually, but not yet. So Peter Peter and James and John are taken by Jesus up this mountain for Jesus to reveal more of this truth to them. Something happens on this mountain where God's glory is manifest and made visible in a way that they aren't going to see again, at least on earth, and they haven't seen before. And if we're honest, as we consider what happened on the mountain, it's a little odd, right? They go up a mountain, Jesus is shining, and he's radiant, and then they go back down a mountain, right? Peter actually wrote about this later in his letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He said, We do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Almost like, hey, I know we told you about the transfiguration, all that happened. That was not a myth. I know it kind of seems like a myth. This actually happened. He actually says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. He's talking about this moment. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. This happened, a revelation on a mountain. And if you look back at your Old Testament, if you look back at the many stories and the many key moments in your Old Testament, you will see that mountains are places of revelation. So Exodus 3, Moses at the burning bush meets with God, Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, Moses leads Israel and they come to Mount Sinai again and it's covered with smoke, and the Lord descends in fire to reveal His covenant law. Moses goes up that mountain to meet with the Lord. Or in 1 Kings 18, Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The next chapter, he goes up and meets with God. God calls him up to Mount Sinai to reveal himself, to give him a vision of himself. And if you remember that story, there's an earthquake, right? God's not in the earthquake. There's a fire. God's not in the fire. But then, still, small voice. And God is in that low whisper and reveals himself on that mountain to Elijah. So you know, when Jesus climbs a mountain, something's going down. Whether it's when he goes up to pray or he gives a sermon on the mount. We're in this moment here. So Jesus, he grabs his three disciples and he intends for them in this moment of revelation to witness his majesty. As Peter talked about. Why he chose these three disciples, it's not really clear. But we see that they seem to be in the inner circle of the twelve. These three are kind of the inner circle of disciples. Flip ahead to the Garden of Gethsemane. They are there. They're supposed to stay awake. They don't. They fall asleep. But they're there. They're the inner circle with Jesus. But beyond this, in this passage, there's many allusions all the way back to Exodus and to Moses. Pointing how Jesus is the new Moses. One of those being that when Moses went up the mountain, Exodus 24, to hear the covenant, God sent three men with him, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. Huh, three men, Peter, James, and John in this moment points to something's going down. 
similar to what happened back in Exodus. And if you remember on that mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud and fire. And later in Exodus 34, Moses is on the mountain and he says, God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And he sees God in his glory, but he only sees his back as God's goodness passes before him. And you remember when Moses came down the mountain after that moment, remember his face is shining with the glory of the Lord. Almost like God's glory like stuck to his skin and stuck to his face so much that the people said, no, 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 uh-uh, put a veil on Moses. Your face is shining and it's radiant. It's reflecting something. It's just blinding our eyes. God revealed himself on Mount Sinai to Moses. And here we see on this mountain, we don't know which mountain this was, but this mountain, Matthew 17, verse 2, Jesus was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Jesus is transfigured. We don't use that word much. Transfigured. Metamorpho. It's kind of like that word metamorphosis. But here's the thing. There's something going on here, something metamorphosis-like. But it's not as if Jesus is a caterpillar that like, on the mountain becomes a butterfly and then he walks down the mountain and becomes a caterpillar again. It's not really metamorphosis in that. That's kind of more what happens to us. We're transformed as we behold the glory of the Lord. But for Jesus, this moment is his glory shining forth. The disciples see a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate glory. That means the glory he's had forevermore bursting through his humanity for them to see in that moment. Part of his divine nature exploding and made visible to these disciples. Scripture is just clear that this is who Jesus is and who he was all along from the incarnation. The incarnation availed it, but this is who Jesus is. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 2.9 says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Some people want to argue that Jesus became God or that Jesus was just a good person who God let him shine for a little bit. Jesus was 100% divine. God radiating for all, forever, eternity. And yet he veiled it in the incarnation. Philippians 2.6 says that though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking on human form. He didn't stop being God. That's not how he emptied himself. He took on something. He became what he was not before. He became 100% human as he remained 100% God. In Isaiah 53, 2, as we just sang, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So this is the Jesus that the disciples are seeing. No form, no majesty, no beauty. They're walking around with this Messiah who kind of looks like them. He's kind of doing some miraculous things, but he looks like them. It's because his glory has been veiled. But when the veil is stripped away and when the curtain's pulled back, you see who Jesus was all along. This is the divine son of the living God before your eyes. This is who he is. He's going to put the veil back on in a little bit, but for a moment, pay attention and look. You're just going to get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ, his deity, his splendor, and his perfection. 
It's what John Calvin called a temporary exhibition of His glory. His glory is being exhibited for them to see. For a moment, the disciples see the glory that Jesus had before the world existed. And for a moment, they're given a taste of the glory that will be manifested at His second coming when His face will again shine like the sun. Revelation 1.16. That's what's going on down, down here. What, what a picture. What about Moses and Elijah? What are they doing here? I thought, oh, it's Jesus. He's gloriously radiating. Yeah, Moses and Elijah standing next to them. What are they doing on the mountain? Here they are, verse 3, appearing and standing next to the shining, radiant Christ, and they're talking. Don't you want to know what they're talking about? Like, if I were there, I'd be like, hey, can I sneak over there a little bit? Like, you, once were, you guys both were dead, and somehow you're here, and there's Jesus shining, and I want to peek in that conversation. We don't, we don't see it here in Matthew, but Luke, Luke's gospel actually tells us what they were talking about. Luke 9, verse 30 says, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, literally his exodus, which he, Jesus, was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Jesus has just, remember, he just turned his face, he's marching toward Jerusalem, and they're talking about it. Maybe they're remembering Moses is how he led the Israelites through the previous exodus. And Jesus is saying, well, watch this. Here's the real exodus. It's coming. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah are there. They're talking. Both of these guys had key roles in the Old Testament. They both delivered God's people, Moses out of Egypt. Uh, Elijah from the prophets of Baal and from idolatry. Both saw a vision, a private, intimate vision of God's glory on a mountain. Elijah and Moses, they're both forerunners. Elijah was called the forerunner. He was going to come before the Messiah. Malachi 4 prophesied that. And Moses was called the great prophet in Deuteronomy 18. And God said, there's going to be another prophet. I'm going to rise up like you, but not like you, better than you. So Moses pointed to a better prophet. And finally, Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. Moses the law, Elijah the prophets. So Jesus said you could sum up your whole Old Testament by the law and the prophets. And here are these two men representing those. So here's what's going on. They're here to point back to the Old Testament. These two, these two guys pointing back to the Old Testament, their stories, the promises of God, the deliverances of God that were partial the law, the prophets, point back to that, but then say, wait a minute, here it is. You know, all that that was talking about, here's the fulfillment right now here in Jesus Christ. All of that, what I was doing, all the stuff that I was leading through, let's point to that. This right here, Jesus the Messiah. Man, don't, don't you wish you were there to see this? How good that it was actually recorded here for us so that we can see who this Jesus is that we worship. Right here in scriptures, we get a small glimpse of it. And it's so good to get that small glimpse because I tell you what, beholding the glory of God, what we were designed to do. What Jesus prays for in John 17. Father, I ask that you might, they might behold the glory that I've shared with you. And it's as we behold Christ that we are we're transformed. Same word as transfigured, but it's different for us. Transformed. Because our change is inward, we become more and more like 
Christ, as we behold Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's what happens as we behold Jesus Christ in his splendor, in his perfection, in his majesty. And so the question before we even move on here, are you beholding Jesus Christ? Are you seeing Jesus Christ? And not just seeing him, not just looking at him, but is he glorious in your eyes? And as we sang a bit ago, is he becoming more glorious? I want to know you and I want to know you more and more and more and more. Paul said in Ephesians 3.19, he prayed, he said, to know the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. So once we feel like, okay, I kind of get this Christ thing, I know the love of Christ, guess what? It surpasses knowledge. Revelation 4 pictures creatures and elders worshiping Christ. And there's not a time limit. It never ceases. Oh, we need a vision like this. Because you and I, we behold bills and medical appointments and pain and trials. We behold tragedy. We behold death. We, we forget at times the glory of Christ or we become familiar with Christ. We need once again to see the glory of Christ. John Owen said in his book, The Glory of Christ, that it's one of the greatest privileges and advancements of a believer in this world and eternity to behold Christ. It's what we need. He says the hearts of believers are like a magnetized needle, which cannot rest until it's pointing north. So also a believer magnetized by the love of Christ will always be restless until he or she comes to Christ and beholds his glory. Being magnetized to Christ, beholding Him anew, satisfies our restless, longing hearts. We see His glory revealed to us, preserved for us here in the Scriptures. So what's our goal? What's our mission? To look at it, behold it, and go back. And go back. And go back as it surpasses knowledge. And continue to behold Jesus Christ. Is all that this is going down here in the transfiguration, it's not for Jesus' sake. He knows he's divine. He knows who he is. He wants us to see it. He wants his disciples to see it. This all happened for them. I mean, just look at, look at how many times the word them shows up here in our passage. Jesus led them, and he was transfigured before them, and Moses and Elijah appeared to them so that they might look on Christ in his glory. And no one, you notice this for, for three verses here, no one's speaking. No one has spoken a word yet. It's just Christ radiating. And then somebody opens their mouth. But the point is going to remain. The emphasis is going to remain on Christ and His Word. To listen to His Word. So point number two, listen. We want to listen. Listen to Christ's message. And we see this in verses 4 to 8. Look at me at verse 4. Peter said to Jesus... Ah, so Peter opens his mouth. Peter said to Jesus... Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. All right, Peter. All right, let's look at a week in the life of Peter. Right? He just, climactic moment in Matthew. He just confessed Jesus as Messiah. And then Jesus started talking about suffering and dying. And Peter said, whoa, no, uh-uh, I rebuke you. So he just turned to the Son of the living God 
and rebuked him and got rebuked. And now, six days later, still reeling from that, he's trudging up a mountain. He gets to the mountain and he's blinded by the light of Jesus' majesty in that moment. And here he goes again. He can't be satisfied with Jesus' glory in front of him. He opens his mouth. Mark 9, 6 tells us he said this. Get this. He said this for he did not know what to say. <laughs> like, man, I don't know what to say in this moment. So I probably shouldn't say it. I, I feel like I got to say something. There's good old Peter, impulsive. I just got to say something. And so he spits it out. Can't you relate with that? Like, Peter's just a picture of all of us. And there's a lesson here. So. Sometimes, if you don't know what to say, don't say anything at all, Peter. And here of all moments was a moment not to say anything at all. How often do you have Jesus radiating and shining like the sun in front of you? And he feels like he's got to speak, and speak he did. If you wish, I'll make three tents for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. I don't know why Peter, we don't know why Peter said this. We can't get into his mind, but it seems like he was trying to be hospitable. Like, you guys need tents. But even more than that, it seems like he wanted to prolong this event. Like, make it last. Like, it's not every day this happens. I want to be up higher on this mountain now that I'm here and I'm seeing what's going on. It's also interesting, the idea, he says tents or tabernacles. It seems to point back to the Feast of Tabernacles. That was a feast where Israel, after the Exodus, spent a whole week, seven days, in tents to remember the Exodus, to remember the wilderness. And as they would do that, they would long for the final Exodus, for final deliverance that they did not have yet. So perhaps Peter's thinking, well, there's Jesus, he's shining, He's the Messiah. There's Elijah. He was supposed to come before the day of the Lord came. Maybe this is it. Maybe the kingdom's about to come. Maybe we're going to go down to the mountain and put the crown on Jesus. And voila, it's coming, the day of the Lord. Whatever the case, here's another rebuke for Peter. Look at verse 5. Notice this, while he's still talking, right? Like he's still going and babbling on. While he's still talking, behold, A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. The Father speaks. And that calls for silence. Not just silence, but listening. I'm always trying to tell my sons that when mama or daddy are talking, that's the time not for talking, but for listening. And even more so, when God the Father is talking audibly or in His Word, it's the time to listen and to be silent. And if you remember Matthew 3.17 at Jesus' baptism, something very similar. God said these same words to Jesus, affirming that this is his beloved son with whom he's well pleased, pointing to Psalm 2, pointing to Isaiah 42. But then he adds here, before he was talking to Jesus, now he's talking to the disciples, and he adds, listen to him. He's going back to Deuteronomy 18. This is a better prophet. Listen to him. So here God is confirming what Peter just said. Peter, you said something really good a little bit ago. Don't forget that. There was a time for you to speak. You did it. You said, that's the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are right, Peter. And I'm going to show you that that's who you were talking about. And notice the cloud that, is, that shows up as well, that, that overshadows them. For, I don't know if it's everybody, it's just them. It's not clear everybody or just Jesus and Moses and Elijah, but it comes Some call it the Shekinah cloud or Shekinah glory, meaning shining bright, the presence of God here in this moment. 
We saw that back in Exodus 13, the pillar of cloud and fire that led Israel from Egypt. We see in Exodus 24, the cloud covers the mountain and God gives his law. Exodus 40, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and God's glory filled the tabernacle. So if you're tracking with me, one, mountains are key words, key moments in your Bible of Revelation. And we see a cloud, you want to pay attention to the cloud. Something's going on, specifically the presence of God in that moment. Like the one that's going to take Jesus up here at the end of Matthew as he ascends. Beginning of Acts, as he ascends into the presence of God. And the one that will be present when Jesus comes again. This is the climactic moment when the Father speaks from the cloud, calling the disciples to listen to Christ. Especially what Jesus just talked about, his suffering and his death. Listen to that. Pay attention to that. And did you notice what happened when the cloud left? Verse 8. When the cloud leaves, when the disciples lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus only. All eyes on Jesus, not not Moses, not Elijah, not even a voice anymore thundering from heaven, but Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God. And here's the point. It's all about Jesus. It all centers on Jesus the Christ. Here we see that Jesus is the climax of all revelation, the climax of the whole Bible, everything that has been pointing to this. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, through Moses, through Elijah. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And we've seen this theme in Matthew. Jesus is greater than. He is greater than Adam and Israel. Matthew 4. He is greater than John the Baptist. Matthew 11. He's greater than the temple and Jonah and Solomon, Matthew 12. John, book of John says that he's greater than Abraham and Jacob. Hebrews tells us he's greater than the prophets and angels and Melchizedek and Moses. And here Jesus demonstrates he's greater than Moses and Elijah. He is the fulfillment of every law and all the prophets, the whole Old Testament, and the one we need to hear. And Peter's trying to make tabernacles for all three of them, like putting them all on the same level. And God the Father says, Oh no, Moses and Elijah, I used them for a time, but Jesus is the one to listen to right now. They were writing and they were living and pointing to Jesus Christ. Listen to him. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, Let these solemn words of the vision ever ring in our ears. Listen to Christ. The best of men are only men at their very best. Patriarchs, prophets, and apostles, martyrs, church fathers, reformers, Puritans, all, all are sinners who need a Savior. Holy, useful, honorable in their place, but sinners after all. They must never be allowed to stand between us and Christ. For He alone is the Son in whom the the Father is well pleased. He alone is sealed and appointed to give the bread of life. He alone has the keys in His hands. God over all, blessed forever. So let us take heed that we hear his voice and follow him. Let us value all religious teaching just in proportion as it leads us to Jesus. The sum and substance of saving religion is to listen to Christ. And so may we listen to him 
course, before any man, before any woman, even before any reformer, Puritan, before any church father, before Moses, before Elijah, we listen to you, Christ. Which most importantly means, or listen means obeying him, following him. Because you can listen and not obey. But when you, when you see the word hear or listen in your Bible, call for obedience, for following Jesus. So let those words ring in our ears today. Listen to Christ. And notice at this moment in the light of this revelation of Christ's glory and the divine approval from the Father, what the disciples rightly do. They get something right right here. They fall on their faces. So then on verse 6, they fall on their faces terrified. Listen, when, when, when Abraham saw God... Genesis 17, you know what he did? Fell on his face. Daniel and Daniel 10, he saw God. He fell on his face. Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel says he saw the glory of the Lord and he fell on his face. And John up on the mountain later, he's going to get a revelation. And in Revelation 1, he's going to see Jesus again shining in full strength. And he falls at his feet as though dead. The Father transfigured the Son that His disciples might know who it is they worship. And that we might respond in glad and reverent praise to Jesus only. And let us not for, let's not forget the reverent part, right? Hebrews 12, verse 28. Listen to this. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and then, or thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So let us worship Jesus with our whole lives. In private, in our homes, in our backyards, in our cars. And what a privilege to worship together here right now, here on Sundays. Gathered together because this is the right response. When, when glory is revealed to us, the right response is worship. Worship with our lives. Worship through song. Worship through, right now, worship through preaching. Worship through hearing God's word proclaimed. It's all worship and the right response to divine glory being revealed. And may this church continue to be marked by true, genuine, whole body, whole being worship of the glorious Christ. But notice, the disciples are down. They've fallen on their faces. They're terrified. Notice what Jesus does next. There's three things. He comes to them, comes to them. The glorious Jesus Christ, who was just shining and radiant, comes to him. He touches them and he speaks. Don't fear. So, so we come, we worship in reverence and awe, but we also come to Jesus knowing that he calls us and he welcomes us. Isaiah 57 15 says, He's the God who dwells in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. This is our Christ. So come to him. And Jesus, he goes down the mountain. He gets his disciples back up and his glory is veiled again. He goes down with these contrite, lowly disciples. And he goes back to the theme of Matthew 16. And we learn more of his mission in the passage as it goes on. So finally, learn... Learn of Christ's mission in verses 9 to 13. The disciples have just experienced a moment that's going to stay with them the rest of their lives. But right now, you know what? They're a little confused. Still trying to figure things out. Look at verse 9. They say, uh, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, 
Tell no, the one, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked them, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? The first, Jesus again tells them for the last time to, to stay silent about all this. Why? Because the transfiguration won't make sense to everybody without the cross and without the resurrection when his full glory in the gospel will shine forth. That's where all this is headed. But the disciples want to know about Elijah. They're remembering that the scribes interpreted uh, the prophecy back in Malachi 4, 5, and 6 that Elijah's going to come before the day of the Lord. So Elijah's going to come first, then the Messiah, then the day of the Lord. And so wait a minute, they're thinking, that's Elijah. That's Elijah we just saw. And Jesus was just shining, and he's, we just figured out he's the Messiah. Elijah said, Malachi 4 talked about Elijah's going to come, and he's going to turn people to God, and he's going to bring about the messianic age of justice and true worship. But wait a minute, Jesus is talking about suffering and dying. Help me figure this out, Jesus. This doesn't compute in our, in our minds here. It's like a big puzzle they're trying to work out. They're confused first about like chronology. Like, there's Elijah. I thought he was supposed to come first. But Jesus, you're already here. But more importantly, they're confused about the mission. If Elijah comes to make everything right, that's what Elijah was supposed to do. How can Jesus be killed? How can the Messiah be killed? And here Jesus goes back to the theme that's been threaded through these past two chapters. Glory comes through suffering. Look at verse 11. He answered, answered the disciples, Elijah does come and he will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. Also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The disciples don't have a framework for suffering with the kingdom. It doesn't go together. They'll get it later. Read this week, read through 1 Peter. Peter gets it. Suffering and glory go together. But they don't get it right now. So Jesus once again points them to how the path to the crown goes through the cross. That's his mission. Elijah came. He came through John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, and he called people to repentance and expectation of the coming Messiah. But the restoration of all things was not what the scribes or what the disciples expected. John's mission was to inaugurate the restoration that Jesus was going to bring about through the gospel, to set it in the motion. And Jesus said John the Baptist accomplished his mission, even though he was killed. And so if he... He brought about restoration and he was still killed. And don't be surprised when Jesus suffers and then is killed along the way. He's working on their framework because there's. They don't have a gap. Like the Messiah comes and then the day of the Lord comes. Glory. Jesus is trying to build that gap in their minds. The Messiah's here, but the Messiah's going to suffer and die and triumph. And at his second coming, then he'll inaugurate his kingdom and everybody will see it. But there's a big gap. And that gap actually has been about 2,000 plus years now. The disciples don't have any gaps in their mind right now. So Jesus is continuing to work at that in their minds. Prepare them for the days ahead. Disciples are starting to get it. But, but in the days ahead, they're going to watch Christ suffer. They're going to watch him be glorified. And they're going to get that that was his mission all along 
you're going to see that the glorious divine Son of God, it's what they're going to marvel at later, He veiled Himself. The divine Son of God veiled Himself in human flesh and let Himself be nailed to a piece of wood so that His true majesty would shine forth in that moment as He humbled Himself as he defeated death and sin, as he rose to redeem his people, and as he was exalted to reign over all as, his, as the risen and glorious Savior and Son and King and God and Christ. And as these disciples were called to suffer themselves, they were to remember this promise of glory. They were to remember the transfiguration in this glorious vision that they received. God designed it to give them hope and courage in the days ahead. But despite their suffering, despite our suffering, there's a crown of glory waiting for us. There will be a moment when they will see Christ shining like glory, just like the sun, in His full glory, and they themselves one day will actually reflect the glory of Jesus Christ as they become like Him. John would later write in 1 John chapter 3, Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. That is a glorious vision, and that is motivation for holiness. So, Covenant of Grace Church, as you take up your cross, as you obey Christ, as you follow Christ, whatever the cost, whatever disappointment, whatever trial, whatever slander, whatever rejection, whatever difficulty, whatever hardship that you might encounter on this road as you follow Jesus Christ, take heart because it's all worth it. We, we know the triumph of the cross. And we know that one day we will see the glorified Christ and we will experience an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. Listen as we close here, as as John Newton puts it. He says, when we get safely home, we shall not complain that we have suffered too much along the way. We shall not say, is this all I get after so much trouble? No, no. When we awake in that glorious world, we shall in an instant be satisfied with His likeness. One sight of Jesus as He is will fill our hearts and dry up all our tears. That day is coming. That is coming. And so let's close by hearing one last time from Peter who who saw Jesus in His glory and then witnessed His suffering, His rejection, His resurrection, His ascension. And he wrote this in 1 Peter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank You for this revelation to us. And would you use it now to sustain our faith and to encourage us? Whatever paths, whatever crosses we're called to take up in following Jesus Christ, stir up faith in us that it's worth it. There is a coming glory. And the God that we serve 
Though he might be mocked, he might be rejected in the world that we live in, he's Jesus the Christ who's reigning right now and will reign one day overall. So Lord, may we be strengthened by this vision. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me.